0: maximum yield isn't necessarily what we're targeting here it's really optimum to drive maximum profit and that was a new concept to me so really understanding that business side and and the way I did that I guess was that business had a benchmarking part to business so there was 150 businesses that we got to look at and examine and study and analyze and work out and look at those really profitable producers and look at what they were doing differently to everyone else.
1: Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimize risk and maximize return on all your hard work. I'm David. And I'll be your host for the show. Good everybody and welcome again to another episode of Boots Off Log On. Today I'm talking with John Francis, a very experienced farm business advisor from Wagga Wagga in New South Wales and the owner and principal consultant at Agrista. John has developed a very deep and wide experience in agriculture. He spent the first 15 years working as an, an agronomist before Focusing the last 15 years on helping clients improve their core profitability through farm business advisory. We talk about the importance of per hectare and per DSE focus when running a profitable livestock enterprise and how that's really important for driving more profit from the land you already have. And how to calculate critical farm business measures like return on assets managed, especially with the increase in land prices and other asset classes within your business. We discuss how the core fundamentals of the farm business environment have changed recently with the increase in interest rates, high inflation and softening commodity prices, yet there are still good wealth creation opportunities for those businesses with good financial management skills and how many businesses will need to start brushing up on those skills and learning skills like cash flow budgeting and cash flow management skills in order to thrive in this new economic environment. This conversation is very interesting and very informative from business management class from one of the leaders in the game, and I believe you're going to get a ton of value from this. So now over to John. Welcome to the podcast, John.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: That's good. So all the way now, I'm on the I'm on the west coast today, and you're are you in Wagga today, John?
0: Yeah, that's right. So over in the east, over, in over the east. east, isn't it? Over uh, east. Over e- that what you say?
1: Uh, yeah, I know. And the other thing, and now are you a born and bred Wagga boy?
0: I am born and bred and managed to go elsewhere and came back, so around the, uh, around the world a little bit, but got back to the roots eventually.
1: I think Wagga's not-so-dirty secret is it actually breeds, even though it's in New South Wales, it breeds some of the best AFL players there is going around, isn't it?
0: That's exactly right. Sadly, I'm not one of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are, are you a league guy or an AFL guy, John?
0: No well I'm actually a rugby union converted to AFL because there's not much to watch in the uh, in the rugby union space at the moment we're really not performing so and AFL I find is a it's a quicker game and it's
1: a more entertaining game, I think, at the moment. Yeah, it can be, can't it? So let's get into the the topic. So, John, I've always wanted to talk to you. I, I think I first came across you when my brother was actually studying in Marcus many, many years ago in the 90s and your name propped up in conversation. But you've been in the agricultural advisory space by the, either in agronomy or in the last probably 15 years, I'm getting it right, in actually farm business advisory for a long time. So how did you make your start in this space?
0: Yeah, so I, I guess I had a pretty checkered career. I've always had a a desire to be involved in agriculture. My father was a stock and station agent and I really had the desire to work outdoors as much as anything and, and really had that sort of That connection with agriculture and what he did and how he created value for his clients and that sort of thing. And so I started off by going to university, which I failed dismally. Wrong time of life. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong time of life for me. So did two years, which was probably two years too many, and a lot of partying and that sort of thing. But I. Eventually, then went away and did some jackarooing, some some operational level stuff in mm-hmm. on a Merino business in the Riverina, and then went up north to you know do a bit of the Northern Rangelands cattle stuff, which a lot of people do, and then came back and I guess I started understanding that I probably needed to do something with my career, and then I went to university externally while I studied agronomy there but I was also working in a CRT CRT store where I was Mm -hmm. getting the hands-on stuff so I found it quite a complementary way of learning so what I learned in the shop was helping me out in the field and helping me at uni and then what I was learning at uni was really helping me in terms of the science with the problems that I was having with my clients and so on and solving those problems from an agronomy perspective so did that for quite a few years and went overseas in the meantime as well and then really got my dream job, which was moving out of that sales agronomy space into a department role, which was less sales-oriented and more extension-based. Or And so that was my dream job. I did that in the central west of New South Wales and then, and then down in Albury in southern New South Wales. And I got to a point then where... I was kicking the clods in the field and so on, and I felt that I was giving investment advice without really understanding any business concepts whatsoever. So Mm I remember it clearly. I was sitting in the paddock, and someone said, "Well, what should I do here? Should I put a new pasture in or not?" And I'm kicking the clods, going, "Well, you get more production out of that, but I don't really know the costs of that." And so. That was the point where I'd learned that I really needed to learn more about farm business and then an opportunity arose with business owners Phil Holmes and Dave Sackett mm-hmm. and so I started my role in consulting them with Holmes Sackett and that was where I really got my head around the business concepts. So it was a brilliant job because it moved me from that production space and the science knowledge, which I think was absolutely critical in my next stage of a career, to an understanding around the business concepts and that was critical for me absolutely critical because I think that gave me the the background of how to search for evidence and how to know that things are take an evidence-based approach to things but then you know maximum isn't maximum yield isn't necessarily what we're targeting here it's really optimum to drive maximum profit and that was a new concept to me so really understanding that business side and and the way I did that I guess was that business had a benchmarking part to the business so there was 150 businesses that we got to look at and examine and study and analyze and work out and look at those really profitable producers and look at what they were doing differently to everyone else. And so that was extremely powerful. And then we also had the discipline of having to write articles. And what we typically did was took production-based information or the research, which was done in the 60s and 70s and 80s, which was absolute gold in terms of, you know, scientific research, but it was all around the production aspects. And all we did was took that, add the economics to it, to then assist in solving problems for producers to work out, well, does this pay or not? Because we're not necessarily driving for maximum production in in most cases. We've got this balance of resource requirements where we're trying to optimise profitability and beyond a point, maximum doesn't become the right point at which you actually optimise profitability. So so I had a, a couple of years of that and well, 15 or so I guess and then my business partner and I we bought the business a few years into that career trajectory with Home Sacket and then recently we've just divested that business and I've started my own business so it's been a you know really powerful pathway for me and I've still got heaps to learn Dave it's it's great I love being involved in agriculture I think this the thing I love about it is it's so dynamic and what I said yesterday might have changed by today because you know there's so much so much happening and and things change so quickly
1: yeah you made a really good point and this is this joining of production and the finances so in agriculture we we have this bad habit of being incredibly production focused because essentially that's one of the obviously the the main primary driver here but I often find when I'm talking to customers about what, you know, how, how to build a cash flow, for example, and I said, really, it's just the numbers side of your production plan. And I was, does your production plan work in reality? So have you found that journey as an advisor, and, and, and that's exactly sort of your career trajectory, it's going, okay, this works from a production or an agronomy point of view, does it work financially? Have you found that there's still a disconnect with this idea of maximizing production over over essentially effective profitability within the industry or within your experience?
0: Yeah, I see it every day. I I think it's a real challenge that we face is a focus on the production side. Now, that's not to say that you should be ignoring production. You definitely shouldn't be. And, And it is a big driver of highly profitable businesses, in my opinion. However, it's understanding the point at which The next bit of production is not worth pursuing Mm. because the cost of that next bit exceeds the benefit and i think that's the challenge i think the other challenge in particularly in livestock businesses and this uh, not so much with crop businesses i think crop businesses are slightly different in in so much as we look at the numbers per hectare both production wise and financially quite easily in a crop production business, you know, your yield is per hectare, you think in per hectare terms, your financials are easily broken down into per hectare performance. But what happens in livestock businesses, in my experience, is we think per head. And the issue with that is if you're not optimising feed utilisation, which the output of that is stocking rate, then The per head performance can convolute the per hectare performance Mm -hmm. so you can have exceptional per head performance but at a low stocking rate very low profit per hectare Mm -hmm. or you can have you know average per head performance but at a very high or optimal stocking rate very good per hectare performance and so if you only look at the per head performance then you're not then you're not potentially looking at the thing that matters most and that's the per hectare performance. Now, the reason that's important is most of your investment in agriculture is in the hectares, not the heads that run on the hectares, mm-hmm. and so we're trying to generate a return on our biggest investment, which is the land. And so to look at both the production per hectare and the financial performance per hectare I think is really important, and, and even heads aren't heads, of course, you mm. know, because some heads eat a lot of grass, And other heads don't eat a lot of grass because you might have a dry sheep relative to one that's lactating with twins or you might have a prime lamb ewe which has, you know, two lambs every year relative to a dry weather. So I guess what we try and do is break those numbers down into a common metric that can be shared across across businesses and across livestock enterprises and that's usually a, a dry sheep equivalent which is just a, a, a unit of comparison, really, or it's a way of working out how much feed is consumed or energy is consumed, but then we also compare per hectare. And I think it's the marriage of the two that really adds value when you're analysing businesses.
1: So it's like you, you, when you look at a livestock business, what you're saying is that you really need to look at margin per DSE or dry sheep equivalent, and and a cost of production per DSE, and then profit per hectare. So that that DSE equivalent and that per hectare equivalent are really the 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 most effective ways of managing and 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 optimizing the profitability of any livestock enterprise.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I'll give you an example, and and this comes back to your question about production. I looked at a client's business recently. And his profits have increased year on year over the last five years. And you can get very excited by that and say, well, you know, we're doing wonderfully. But when you look at his production per hectare, it's actually declined. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is, you know, he's, he's grown and there's a whole range of reasons. I don't really want to dig into the reasons other than to say the important part is if all you looked at was profit you'd look at that line and say, well, we're trending in the right direction, but when you pull things apart a little, he's actually only achieved that outcome as a function of price increasing, and he's got no control over that, and the bit that he did have control over, which was production per hectare, if you look at kilos of beef per hectare, it's actually declined. And so the bit he had some control over Has actually declined the bid he had no control over has increased sure profits increased but it hasn't increased by the magnitude that it should have if he'd actually focused on the thing that matters which is product production per hectare does that make sense
1: yeah well and truly and and so when you're looking at a livestock enterprise and you're, you, let's say you've got a new client for the first time and, and you're saying, okay, I need you to say, increase your DSCs from, I know, eight to 12 or, or whatever, depending on where you are. And that means I want you to, you know, we're going to increase your past utilization and we're going to. You know in, there's going to be increased fertiliser usage, et cetera, or improved pastures, and they look at that from a cost point of view that's going to cost me an extra one hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever, or purchasing the livestock. How do you work through with a client to go, okay, yes, I know this is a a more intense or a higher a slightly higher cost? per hectare operation and get them to say, but at the end of the day, this might generate you an extra $200,000 worth of um, free cash flow or profit or um, return at the end of the year. So how do you go through that process with a client?
0: Yeah, that's a really insightful question. I think the first thing is that you need some evidence to come to that conclusion that you're that you need to increase feed utilization. So the first thing is, you know, looking at the data. So they actually have to have some data to start with. Mm-hmm. And then you look at and then you compare that with others and demonstrate the magnitude of the difference. So here's our opportunity. So you've already created that as you quite rightly start. The next thing you do is you look at that magnitude of difference. And you've just talked about a, a magnitude of difference of four dry sheep equivalents. Per hectare in that case. Now we're talking about a partial budget, so we're all running, ready, running eight. What we want to know is what's the extra benefit out of running another four? And let's assume, and, and let's let's think about how we actually come to the conclusion of of, of the uh, return on investment here. So let's assume that your the marginal benefit of those four additional DSEs, sits at, and we'll pluck a figure at the moment, of $70 per dry sheep equivalent. Now, what that means is that's gross profit less enterprise costs. So mm-hmm. in, our gross profit is 100 bucks per DSE. Our enterprise costs are 30 bucks a DSE. And if we're talking a sheep enterprise, that'll be things like your shearing costs, your supplementary feed costs, your animal health costs, those sorts of things. So our, and our gross profit is just sales, less purchases, plus the value of inventory change. And it's important that we take all three of those in an earnings. When we're looking at earnings, it's different if we're looking at cash flow. We don't take that inventory change piece into account because it's a balance sheet item, it's not a cash item. Mm-hmm. So we've got our $100 less our $70. Now we've got to think, does anything change at the overhead cost level? So we've talked enterprise costs, which were the shearing, the, the animal health, the supplementary feed, the selling costs, those sorts of things. Now, those are enterprise expenses. They're the ones that are easily attributable to the enterprise. But below that, you've got overhead costs. Now, the value of what you're talking about in terms of intensifying, which is really at the moment, I think a really good, good op opportunity for growth into business. The value of that is, think about your overhead costs. What increases? Mm. Does labour increase? Maybe not. You know, does insurance costs increase? No. Does motor vehicles' in, expenses increase? No, it doesn't. Does admin costs increase? No, it doesn't. Really, probably the only other thing that's going to increase there might be a bit of fertiliser. So let's chuck 5 bucks in a DSE for fertiliser, and we're up to 65 bucks a DSE. Mm. So, so our cost base... Um, is the thirty bucks that we had per DSE for enterprise costs, and another five bucks for for the fertilizer. But on top of that, what's your main investment? It's the DSE itself. Mm-hmm. So we've got to go to the market, and we've got to buy our our DSE. And at the moment, let's say that's about one hundred and fifty bucks mm-hmm. per DSE. So. What we're doing then is we're saying, right, so I've got to go to the market, I'll buy a dry sheep equivalent. It doesn't matter whether that's a ewe or, you know, it's cows and calves or whether it's a steer or whether it's a weather. That's irrelevant. If if we've got these production units, this is how we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So we spend $150. We've also got $35 worth of expenses there. So we've got to go to our bank and say for every DSE, I'm going to need $150 for the purchase of the, Of the animal, Mm -hmm. and I need 35 bucks worth of running costs over and above what I'm doing with my existing eight DSEs. Mm -hmm. And then what I'm going to generate from that is 65 bucks from that investment. So let's just think about that. I get that $65 every year, let's say for five years. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that five years, I've still got the animal worth 65 bucks. And it's worth 150 bucks. Mm-hmm. right? So now let's think about that in terms of return on investment. The way that looks is, and I'm just trying to do the numbers, so I'm flat out talking and breathing at the same time <laughs> here, Dave. So there you go I'm, 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 tr- I'm trying to run an investment analysis at the same time, which is just that's a 44% rate of return. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm looking at that and saying, well, that's just phenomenal. Now the cash flow piece that you quite rightly point out though is another important part here. And that's not instant cash. Because I've bought I've gone and borrowed 150 bucks. Let's not worry about our 30 35 bucks operating because it's returned in the in the operations that year. But now I've got to think about with when will I actually break even on this because that's what my banker wants to know. Mm-hmm. So I've got this, I've got a pretty compelling business case from the from the outset, 44% return, and let's say my borrow cost of money at the moment is six. Well, I'm earning 38% above the cost of debt. Mm, yeah. But I've got to, still got to do two things. One is I've got to have enough capital to do it, so that's where my, cash flows are important. But the second one is I've got to demonstrate to the to the bank when I'm going to get this money back to them. And in this case, it's by, you know, year three. And so, but by, by year 10 or year five, or whatever it is, I've got the value of the, I've got equity in the DSE and I've got the earnings that it's generated for me over a five-year period. So in strict financial terms, I've given you a compelling business case, the next bit is now let's look at the risk around that. And I think that's really important. So a lot of people come up and they'll say, well, you know, I really need a, a risk management plan around this. And that's where feed budgeting and understanding your the, the difference between running livestock optimally and running them suboptimally is really critical because I'm I guess where I'm heading with this is I want to know that you've got the skills to mm. drive this and then I'm going to need to do a lot of things proactively so for example if you're running at eight DSE and you had the capacity to add this additional four DSE well you probably ran those animals with a lot of thrift and they were big animals and, you know, they had a lot of body condition 100% of the time and you got through pretty easily. Now you're running running that body condition score down and it becomes a far more time-critical management system. And this is where I think... People can become a bit unstuck. So, I'm suggesting that you would do most of your animal health treatments proactively. You really need some management skills to get you through, and you need to be on top of your feed budgeting so that if that feed and energy isn't there at any particular point in time, you can act proactively to manage that.
1: Yeah. So, what you're saying is so you've got your, you've got your, production plan which is based on a a financial analysis and that's over a a short one term and up to three to five year return investment equation and then you have to then manage the risk around that which is your obviously your financial risk so your cash flow risk managing the the cash flow but at the same time you're going to have to tighten up or 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 enhance your feed skills in other words you might have to move your livestock more often or get used to them running at a lower a body score or those sorts of things or feed them a little bit more over the, the winter or um, summer. So you're going to have to so like elevate your um, grazing skills to maybe to the next level to run this system and, and understand where the risks are.
0: Yeah, you've just nailed it. And all of that's hard because if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, right? Mm-hmm. So now what I've told you is, something you probably know anyway Dave but isn't that what we consultants do?
1: I know we tell, it, tell each other what we already know
0: That's right so so but the important part here is when you put all this together, I'm now saying well you've got to improve your financial management skills. you've got to improve your your animal health and husbandry skills. you've got to improve your ability to assess livestock and feed base and match those together. That's quite – and on top of that, you'll have the day-to-day operational stuff that you got to manage as well. Yeah. So it's not as if this stuff's easy, and I acknowledge that it's not easy, but the one thing that I guess if you dip your toe in the water and you have a crack at it, what you're actually doing is building those skills. Mm -hmm. And so my experience with skills is they need repetition. And so one of the interesting things about this – stocking optimally for me is when you get when you get to that critical period of drought or dry pinch or whatever you like to call it what I find is the people that manage the the systems that are optimally stocked actually have less problems making a decision because they're so used to making hard decisions because they're always on the edge they're always got to make
1: those decisions. I tell you what, all over Australia, our clients with the lowest rainfall, the most, most unreliable weather systems tend to be the most incredible managers of both risk and cash flow. So both production risk and financial risk. They tend to, it's a skill that They've had to develop in order to thrive. So, I think having someone who who grew up farming and up, I always admired the people in the three hundred millimetre and below rainfall zones in their ability to manage both financial and production risk. So, it is a skill you just develop because you can. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I'm the same. I see those people that are. Some people think they're on the edge. I think they're they're perhaps got more. Discipline than others and they just know you know how to how to walk that tightrope quite easily mm. or well not easily they they make it look easy but they tend not to procrastinate as much they get on with it that doesn't mean they're always right but they are are decisive and their experiences shape the way
1: that they make their decisions as well. And I 100% agree with you. You take on a project, let's say this is in our, in our hypothetical case, I'm going to increase my DSC from 8 to 12. You will develop those skills. You know, you might do it with support from people like yourselves or the department or, or you know, your, your community, but those skills, it's doable and it's about just slowly chipping that one off, isn't it? Yeah,
0: that's right, that's right.
1: It brings a good point up though. So um when we we're talking earlier in the week, we we're talking about the 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 change in the basically the norms of agriculture at the moment. We're talking the last, depending on what industry you're in and where you are in the in the country, agriculture has had a not too bad, except for the people who've had floods and droughts and stuff, and a pretty good couple of years or two, three years, especially if you're in grain. But the the core elements of what makes up the farm business environment the fundamentals have changed so we've got you know higher interest rates obvious, very obviously but we've also got higher inflation input costs are going up because of all the supply chain challenges around the world and but we've also got declining commodity prices so we've you know the core fundamentals of what we've been operating on for the last we're used to have, have fundamentally changed especially cheap money. So you, I It's probably when I was thinking about that, you're talking about this this scenario you're running through, and you're going, "Well, it, people used to make money at eighteen percent interest rates. <laughs> so, you know, how do how do we now, as a farming community, or well, how do we how do farmers or farm businesses now start reframing the business environment with these new dynamics? Do you believe?
0: Yes, it's a really interesting time to be an ag and I think the whole last 10 years has been just amazing for wealth creation you know I tell people that it took me three years to get used to interest rates declining and it's taken me three months to get them get used to them heading back north so so I think ha- how do we look at that I think the lens is definitely different And I think what you've got to do is get back to the fundamentals and really understand this is where financial literacy is absolutely critical because I think understanding your business is really important. So I'll give you an example. I did a job for someone not so long ago and they were looking at expanding three years ago, $10 million worth of assets or thereabouts, and they were looking at borrowing for another two, so effectively building the footprint by a magnitude of another 20% or thereabouts, whatever it was. So so we ran that analysis three years ago and they actually purchased the place. The interest rates were sitting at 3%. Their profitability of the business was sitting at about or marginal profitability, so in much the same way that we just did that 4DSE bit, Mm -hmm. marginal profitability. So we just looked at the $2 million farm in its own right How much additional profitability would it generate? And it was sitting at about 5%. So already I know that if the business is generating on a marginal basis or partial budget basis 5% and my interest cost is 3%, I've got surplus cash in that business. Mm -hmm. So it was a cash flow positive lend. And then on top of that, you know, capital growth was just phenomenal at that time. So they've got some pretty significant capital growth fast forward to a month ago and we're doing the same analysis for another two million dollar potential tack on to this business and we're now the business due to beef prices falling the be- business is generating it on a partial budget basis around four percent but interest rates are six percent so now i've got negative cash flow on a partial budget basis mm-hmm. but not only that 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 4% operating return is now 3% in their existing business because I I don't have the so the reason it's 4% on a partial budget basis is I don't have the overhead cost same overhead cost structure in my existing business so I get a sort of kick in profitability mm-hmm. so my existing business is back at 3 or whatever it is and there's still a bit of debt in that business over the whole business it puts my it puts my earnings relative to my interest costs at 1.2 times, which is a very narrow margin. And so I think whereas the preceding expansion sat at three to one times, meaning the amount of earnings of the business covered the interest costs by three times, now the amount of earnings covers the interest costs by 1.2 times, only just. Which means that you've got no surplus cash to do the things you need to, like reinvesting in the farm, like paying your, well, that's after tax, but paying, reinvesting in capital expenditure, investing personally, all those sorts of things. So the point I'm making is the interest rate environment is very different. The inflation pressures have changed things and commodity prices have changed things. Don't sweat it. But do your analysis and be really clear on what your views are and how you put those into the analysis. I think the other thing, and this is where you know, tools like cash flow forecasting are absolutely critical, you absolutely have to do those cash flows and run the scenarios of if it's good, I'm going to end up here. On the balance of probability, I'm going to end up here. And if it's bad, I'm going to end up here. Does that put me out of business? Yes or no. If it puts me out of business, I need a really good exit strategy. Mm-hmm. So I think the message I'm getting to here in a really long way, I apologise, but is we've lost some of those skills <laughs> over the last little while because no matter what we did, it was probably a good investment when interest rates are 2 or 3%. There's probably nowhere you can't invest and get a better return than that.
1: Yeah, so we've got sort of the 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 essentially cheap money over the last decade has made us a bit financially flabby. I mean, not flabby, but a bit <laughs> a bit lazy, mentally lazy in in making those investment decisions. Um, so it's sort of time to start dusting off the um, scenario analysis and the multiple cash flows and, um, and and polishing up those skills a bit. You reckon, John?
0: I think that's exactly right. Well, and if you don't have the skills at all, start them. US and Australians are heaps better than us in the East at, you know, at at running your cash flows and really on top of your business stuff, in my view. When you come over East, there's people who are really good at it and there's people that are not so good at it. There's a lot of cut and pasting of cash flows and I just hate to see it because, A cash flow is not a cut and paste of last year. Mm -hmm. It's the time to think about how the cash is generated in your business, where you're going to be short, how who you need to speak to with plenty of lead time and then review it through the year because my relationship with my financier should be depending on that document and you should be reviewing it and getting back to that document and saying, look, I can see in three months' time, we're going to be in a bit bit bigger of a hole than we thought we were or, you know, we've got more cash than we thought we would have, you know, we need to plan for that as well. So I think it, that those those skills have sort of, it's been so good over the last little while, we've sort of, uh, we don't really need to do it. Now I think it's time to get back into it.
1: Yeah. So those, we mentioned it before, you mentioned it to me the other day, those type feedback loops are super important. So especially when everything gets a little tighter and not just for your bank, I mean, obviously your bank, look, always people, people always, so like, you know, banks can create a bit of emotion, but at the end of the day, they're investing in your business with add interest and they, they they want to i mean their job is to sell money so their job is to sell you as much money as, as as they can but they have to also understand they need to know you understand your risk and can manage your risk so if you can show them how you manage risk and actively manage that risk financially they're they're obviously going to be a, a better a, a more comfortable business partner aren't they
0: yeah, that's exactly right. And don't forget, the banks also created a lot of wealth for you. Oh yeah, through the power of leverage. So they're just you're just using your equity to create more wealth than you could have without the debt. And so you know it's really important that that business partner is rewarded with information, is rewarded with the the understanding of your business, and. Is rewarded with a business partner that actually cares and 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 communicates with them.
1: I think you know one of the questions I got this question about 10 years ago at a, at a, at a conference I said and it was basically David what do banks want and I said exactly the same as you so if you had sold up your family farm and you were you were now chosen to be an active investor in agriculture and you and one of your neighbors came up and said hey John can I borrow three million dollars I want to buy the farm next door what questions would you ask of that, that neighbor? And you'd want to make sure your money's safe. You'd want to make sure they're good at what they did and how they, manage, how they manage that risk in a bad year because you don't want to lose your investment. So all the questions that you would want to ask or all the, the things you'd want to know in place to protect your own money, the, the banks pretty much need the same thing. So we're not that different really, are we?
0: no that's right i think you share you share the same goals and and believe it or not as you said they want you to grow because they want to grow their book as well yeah so it's it's a pretty well aligned set of values in most circumstances
1: so let's talk a bit more about sensitivity analysis or return on assets i wanted to go back Um, John too, you mentioned before about, you know, this, this getting return per hectare. And so when we're in an environment like this, you know, land prices have gone through the roof. A lot of people have, you know, have got expensive assets in hand, And this idea of, you know, increasing this return on assets managed or deployed. Can you just give us a little bit more of a summary around that and how how you would focus on that? So you've you've invested a lot in in livestock machinery, um, expensive land, and this idea of you might not need to grow, but you could improve your return.
0: Yeah, okay. So I think this is one of the most important financial metrics you have on farm. And so the metric is return on assets managed. It's a measure of profitability. And when we're talking, and it's a ratio. So it's a ratio of operating profit relative to the total value of assets managed on farm. So you manage, you, you just mentioned the three of those. It's typically land, livestock, plant equipment, maybe water infrastructure, all that sort of stuff is, is tied up in there as well. So, so I want you to think about the last four years. So if we cast our mind back to four years ago, and let's say a, uh, the total value of assets under management for a farm business at that stage was $10 million, and they generated $300,000 worth of operating profit, and operating profit is the bit that's in your control, so that's at gross profit, less enterprise expenses, less overhead expenses. So we've got $10 million worth of assets, We've got $300,000 worth of profit. That's an operating return of 3%, okay? Now, fast forward four years and think about what's happened to land values. They've effectively doubled. So now we've got $20 million worth of assets under management. If we do nothing to the top line, we've still got our $300,000 worth of profit. We've now got an operating return of 1.5%. So the doubling of asset values, or the denominator, has effectively halved our return on assets managed. Or, in another another way of looking at it, our financial resource efficiency. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is to double our operating profit just to maintain our level of three percent. So we had three three hundred thousand divided by ten million. We've now got three hundred thousand divided by twenty million. We need to build the top line to six hundred thousand just to maintain our three percent operating return. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is one of the dilemmas of agriculture at the moment, particularly with a rapidly growing denominator. And so, I guess the the prices get you some of the way there. So prices will continue to increase, but usually at a pretty low rate. But the reason that we uh, very focused on efficiency and driving more profit out of the business is this exact dilemma is because we absolutely have to because what happens if you're if you're generating 1.5% out of that 10 20 million dollars worth of assets you're going to get pretty tired of it. Mm-hmm. particularly if we're getting into a period where you know where capital growth flatlines so I've only talked about the operating side of the business of course you you have the other good part of the business, which is the capital growth, Mm -hmm. which is over 80% of that asset base, which is land, 80 or 90, or whatever it is. So so you get two two returns. But what happens over time, and assuming we're going into a period, because we've had this rapid period of capital growth, it is plausible that we might actually start to plateau out a bit now uh, on the capital growth. And, if we're only generating 1.5% as an operating return, people get a bit sick of that. And then they tend to look at their money and say, well, I can invest that somewhere else so I'll get out of agriculture. Yeah. So our dilemma is to, to drive the top-line growth. And I guess just getting back to your point about where how you do that, I think how you do that really depends on your view at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, interest rates have increased and, We have had this period of rapid capital growth. My personal view is that capital growth is going to flatline or or at least, you know, certainly not go up at the same rate. Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone shares that view. They don't have to. You work out what your own view is for yourself. Mm -hmm. But if you do share that view, then effectively the issue then, of course, is if you choose to expand now, and let's say you're operating your marginal operating return is 4% and the interest rates are 6%, then effectively you're bleeding cash out of the business for something that you don't believe is gonna increase it for any time for any time for a little while. So I would say, well, is that a sensible thing to do? I, I don't necessarily think it is. But that's, that, that's why your view of capital gain is really important. So if you take another alternative view, which is what are the things that I can do within my four fences, which is sort of internal growth, if you like, and what are the ways that I can capitalise on that, well, that's the type of approach that I think is really powerful at the moment. And we just went through one example there that I think yeah. you've just nailed, which is a 44% internal rate of return. Now what am I doing? Well, what's that cost me? The only the only bit of capital that I've put into that is a little bit more um, livestock value. So that that goes on like the capital value or the bottom line, the denominator part, but you get a lot more on the top line with this. and that's where I think you can drive the operating efficiency. And the way and the reason it's so powerful is effectively you're spreading the same overhead cost structure over more productive units. Yeah, That is really the power of this. And so it's really driving cost efficiency. So that will either come through labour efficiency, or if you're talking in cropping businesses, you know, taking that gear and doing more hectares with the same gear gives you the same sort of level of oper- drives operating efficiency. And so I think now is a really good time to be investing internally. I think looking at those things. So is it you know, soil amelioration, is it things like more fertiliser, driving more growth out of the pastures you've got, is it changing the pasture type, is it your cropping rotation system, is it, you know, technology, is it any labour-saving device because at the moment labour costs are so high. All those sorts of things are the ones that I think can drive those internal efficiencies which drive the top line without changing that bottom line
1: too. Yeah, so you don't have to get so hung up on hectares. Just really it's that, you know, like you said, re- driving that return on 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 the on what you already have is, you know, where we can actually make some, you know, decent decent gains even in this environment.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, interest rates are still 6%. Yeah. Many of the investments you make, internal investments, generate a return of over 30%. Yeah. Now that's still a really good use of debt. Yeah. What you've just got to be cognizant of and this again getting back to the cash flow component is when you're going to pay that back and is your bank comfortable with when that when that's going to be paid back
1: and i think there's always two things here isn't it John? so there's there's i always say there's can we and should we a bit so you know or should we and can we so there, there's this you know straight Is it a good investment? Is it a good return on investment calculation, which is very straight line? And then there's this cash flow choice. So that's really can we, isn't it? So in other words, yes, it might add up from a pure return on money point of view, but it has cash flow implications, which you also have to manage. So you've got to sort of balance up both is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's plenty of things I'd love to invest in at the moment and my kids often do this to me. They say, Dad, I'd love a new bike and I say, yeah, all right, where's the money for that? <laughs> now, it's exactly the same here. I'd love to invest in a lot of things but firstly, you've got to get the access to capital, right? Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is, you know, am I super confident that I can repay the debt over the period that I've got, that I've suggested I have? And this is an important point, David, is that I can trot out these numbers and tell you 65 bucks a DSE is the number because I look at a lot of businesses. Mm -hmm. But if your return in this case is 35 bucks or 30 bucks a DSE in that former example, well, that's eight years to break even. That's not a 44% rate of return. That's a you know, a far lower rate of return, and this is where knowing your business yeah. and knowing what's what's right for you. Because just because I've trotted out sixty-five bucks a DSE, that's a good return. If your return is only twenty, there's no way I'm going to tell you the same thing.
1: And that's probably the good point about you, you, your your many years of experience in benchmarking, is it is. Essentially a number, but everybody's businesses are fundamentally different in subtle ways. So what you're saying here is that yes, that might be achievable in that area or on that person or with this set of historical circumstances, but it's more important for you to understand what your personal benchmarks are, what your personal place is, and improve from that point rather than taking some sort of industry average or so.
0: That's exactly right. An industry average for this sort of analysis is useless.
1: Yeah. So it just goes back to what you're saying before is, is you know the real gains here is obviously you've got to be good at what you do. From a production point of view, you've got to have those skills. But almost well, as critical is you've got to understand your numbers and where you sit and and how to manage your risk. And you know because the return is there, you've just got to know how to how to put it together, how to put the puzzle together.
0: That's right. And and so in that case where returns are at at, at twenty bucks rather than. 65 I guess maybe I I would say well let's see how we can get it from 20 to 65 first so the order of those investments becomes important and then the level of risk of which one that we take on also becomes important.
1: I remember I was in a back when I was a sheep farmer 20 years ago or more 25 years ago I was part of a benchmarking group and there was one of the participants. He got the he got the lowest performance in 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 his weather trials. They're anonymous, but he he volunteered his information. But and do you know what? He was so excited about it because he he had such low performance in the weather trials that he said, "I'm actually making pretty good money now." And if you guys, if I know I've got that much improvement to make, I'm going to make a killing over the next ten years. <laughs> So, that's right you know like so it didn't matter about where he sat but i love that perspective he goes look i'm okay now but if i can improve to where say the top performer in this list is that's that's like free money almost like you know that's how he sort of thought <laughs> <saw it. laughs>
0: that's right and that's the power of these things is really understanding where the opportunity is i, I never look at a set of data and say oh that's the worst performer that that's the person with the most opportunity yeah. and the lowest hanging fruit, And the cost of getting those gains is usually really low. I hate working with really productive and <laughs> the heavy hitters because it's hard to identify the next gain. Yeah, it's, it's difficult.
1: I remember when when my um, first entered cropping in the '90s, and you know, so in our area, it's quite high rainfall, so we we're getting really good yields, and it was easy in the beginning. You just t- chuck a ton of fertilizer on and get your weeds under control, and you got four ton of wheat. And but after that, it got really hard. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, it uh, it gets harder at the, the at the pointy end, don't it, John?
0: Yeah. Well, I think um, as as the you know at the bottom end the the only way is up so you know and you took the lowest hanging fruit and took the glory for it but the the you know the most impressive is when you go from that as you said it's harder with each incremental gain and so that's that's the challenging piece how do we keep getting and so i think the other point there is don't expect you know if you've got a lot of the low hanging fruit out of the business you can't expect to have the big wins from then on yeah and the incremental gains are enough on a six percent return operating return then you know just these little tweaks still add value and and that's all you can expect
1: yeah it's a bit like for the afl fans out there it's like the old mick malthouse one percenters you know you know you got to take your one percenters every year really so after that point don't you
0: that's right
1: all right john well thank you very much um I, uh, like I warned you before, I've got a couple of questions for you now. Um, I, I was talking to John beforehand, and I ask these questions of every guest. But one of the things, John, is that to to close off today is we have a lot of myths or misunderstandings in ag, and I know you've probably been thinking about this the whole time that we were doing the interview. But <laughs> have you got any common myths that you or misunderstandings you have experienced with ag over your many years of experience? Uh, yeah,
0: look, one one of the myths is that. I think is that you can't make money out of agriculture. You know, there's people that say it's a it's a wealth-creating business, but I make all my wealth out of um, out of land ownership. And to an extent that's correct, but the reality is if you're earning six percent operating return on an asset worth, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, more million dollars worth, there's still some pretty good returns to be made out of agriculture. So This, I'm cash poor bit and I'll always be cash poor, I don't necessarily think that's correct because I do see a lot of businesses um, that are generating reasonable amounts of cash and I don't just mean in the good years, I mean every year. And so, yes, there's a lot of cash goes back into the business but I do think you can be a business that generates cash. It just takes a lot more discipline than many are prepared to put in.
1: True. And the last question from me, John is, when you're not, you know, helping people optimize all these things, um what do you do when you're not involved in ag John?
0: I love I love body surfing, so that's one of my passions, but I only get to do it for a very few, a very minor time of the year. And then once I come out of winter, I come out of hibernation and start to get in the pool. So I do like to swim a bit, but I look more like a beached whale at the moment, <laughs> so um, I've got to get back in that pool as uh, soon. But works, um, sadly, not getting me there as uh, frequently as I would like to. But I'm not going to ever sad, um, do that swim from Perth, or where is it, from to oh, that, uh, yeah, that what's your, yeah, yeah, the Rottnest yeah. swim. So... It, yeah, so I I would absolutely love to do that, but I'm too scared of shark.
1: Oh, don't worry. What you do is you just make sure you have lots of other people around you, so they eat them first.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I need to brush up on that theory. I, I, they seem pretty scattered in the in the shots that are in the drone shots that I've seen of that uh, swim
1: you know my theory at the beach and i think south australians can probably um, sympathize with this as well you just have a look at the drone shots because you really don't want to know how many sharks are in the water so do you-
0: no, no I'm, I'm i know it's uh, i've looked into the psychology of this and i know it's the availability heuristic that is scaring me the probability, i've got more chance of getting hit by a bus on the way to the beach whether in a, on a in a part of the world where there's no buses a relative to getting eaten by a shark but it's i think it's the thought of how i end up if
1: i do do you know what i've got this funny story We were down on the south coast of Western Australia in a popular surf beach and they have shark helicopters that fly up and down. And um, this helicopter came over, all our kids were out there surfing and a bunch of other people. And this helicopter came down with its alarm on to say there was a shark in the surf and nobody was moving. And so the the guy was hanging out the window doing this big clapping hand with his his arms to say, look, there's a shark in the water. And everyone got frustrated, and they just all surfed in, walked up the beach, walked down the beach 200 metres, and went back in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love this idea that they convinced themselves that the shark was going to stay up the beach.
0: Yes, yeah, that that's a passion for surfing right there. <laughs>
1: All righty. Well, thank you very much, John. I really, um, I think I I learned a lot and I hope everybody listening learned a lot Um, today. um, I I enjoyed this conversation. So thanks very much for giving us your time.
0: Thanks for having me, Dave. Speak soon.
1: Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So, if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about Agrimaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.